0: we we'll Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by the crew. I have Natasha Moskerenis with me. Natasha, hello. How are you? How is life? How's the stock market? How's your partner? What you got?
1: Oh, my God. Well, I'm going to be completely honest. I just got an email from One Medical saying that my recent doctor's visit wasn't covered by insurance, and so I'm a little unwell right now, (sighs) realizing that I need to deal with that after this podcast. Oh, that sucks. How's that for truth?
0: (laughs) There you go, Marianne. You want to weigh in here on the equities and uh, excellence of the American healthcare system?
1: <laughs> uh,
2: no, I don't think we have enough time for that, Alex. But I can't say I'm happy to be back.
0: Yes, it is lovely to have you back.
2: We
1: missed you. We
0: we, we really did. TechCrunch has is, is never been bigger than it is now in terms of like like humans that are on staff across our various efforts and so forth. But we're still small enough that when any one critical person leaves, you really feel the absence. It's so true. Marianne, we missed you. Oh, thank you. Missed you guys. But we're glad you're back because there's so much to get through today. We are going to be talking about uh, Rewind Onward and something from Baiju's, but it's not what you think. Then we're going to be talking about a, quote, working model of unicorn death and, comma, uh, and Brex, uh, which are <laughs> separate. <laughs> which now that I've said it set separate, but related, not about death, but you'll see. It'll make a lot of sense. Brex, don't, don't email us. <laughs> and then finally, we're going to be talking about fintech layoffs at the end of the show because there has been a barrage of these in the last. 24, 48 hours, Marianne, like you've been, you've been busy.
2: Yeah, I mean, we frankly, we all have because there's just been too many to keep up with. Uh, Natasha, Paul, and the UK has pitched in too. There's just so many FinTech layoffs going on this week.
0: Yeah, I'm struggling to actually keep track of them all. I'm trying to get someone to write a, a roundup for TechCrunch Plus of all the layoffs and try to figure out what's going on earlier stage, but we'll see if we can squeeze that in. Uh, but to start, I think we can just say that when it comes to the Twitter situation with Elon, I don't know if there's much else to say there. It's
1: a very weird time to be a tech journalist covering Twitter as someone who's a tech journalist not covering Twitter, I can still sense that feeling. So sending coffee and kudos to everyone who's covering it. And there is so much misinformation out there. So it's just, I feel like the the doom scrolling and pausing is, is a good reminder to adopt as behaviors.
0: Yes. Give yourself a break. Things will shake out as they do. The last thing that we heard was that, uh, heard, it was reported, I believe via Bloomberg, that roughly half of Twitter staff is going to be fired tomorrow. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. By the time you hear this recording, it will be Friday. So then maybe that news will be out and you can tell us if that shook out or not the way we thought it was going to. But let's not say Elon Musk the rest of the show. Let's instead talk about some startup deals. The bread and butter of equity. Rewind. Natasha, I am kind of obsessed with this, but tell people what's going on. This
1: is probably the coolest startup. One of the coolest startups I've covered all year, simply because of the ambition mixed in with the fact that it's trying to disrupt search, which I mean, usually on this show, we're like a little fatigued around yet another Google competitor. But Rewind is trying to disrupt the way we personally search through our own online lives. It creates a recording and a timeline that you can sift through of every day where you can see everything that you've seen, said, or heard by integrating specific apps with the platform. And to put it more, I guess, plainly, it creates this like searchable recording of what happened when, who said what during a Zoom meeting. And, you know, every instance someone has ever brought up venture capital trends in the Series A world, something that I would love to have kind of synced throughout all the different apps that I have in my life right now. I'm so curious what you guys think, because I do feel like this is a little of a journalist cheat for us.
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, it sounded too good to be true. I mean, it just sounds incredible, like such a handy, wonderful tool to have. I am curious, does this apply to like desktop and mobile or one or the other?
1: It's all desktop, all iOS and Apple products right now. Sorry, iOS might be the wrong way to put it.
0: Uh, OS ten, Yes. Or Mac.
1: So it's not it's not on your phone at all. Right now, it's only available on Macs and they're taking people on their wait list. but it is pretty confined to Apple right now. I asked them kind of the why now and they very much just attributed. The co-founder is Dan Siriker, who is the former co-founder of Optimizely. He said that it's very based on the Apple chips is the only reason they can kind of do the company to begin with because it compresses a lot of that data. So it doesn't take up too much space on your
0: computer. That's where I wanted to jump in because we do a lot of stuff on our computers, our work machines during the day. And I'm struggling to figure out what the core substance is that rewind it requires. Does it actually take like a full video recording of my various screens throughout the day. And then I can like scrub back and forth through the timeline to see kind of like, you know, when you're going back and forth in like a a DVD recording, you know, you can kind of like see where you were going. And then do I search and then it takes me to a certain part of like my recording for the day? Is that how it works? Yeah.
1: So I think a video, like this is honestly one of those times where the podcast isn't the best format to explain exactly how it works. So I put a video on the article, which we'll link. I will answer those questions though. So one is that you can toggle through your day, kind of how like search history on Chrome shows you where you've been. Yes. This is kind of like a search history for all the different apps that you use throughout the day. But it is as simple as like if you create a new window during this podcast and you are you open up a new story, but then you close it and you're like, hey, wait, I think I opened up a breaking news piece. You can kind of rewind to where when we recorded this. It's very futuristic in a way. It's recording things that you don't really know you care about in real time. So in case you need it, you can go back and then, really quickly, on the search front, like let's say we want to search. I use this example when I was talking about this for the TechCrunch pod. If you want to search every time someone's mentioned hot dogs to you recently, you can do it in a similar way you would do, kind of in Google Drive, where it would bring up it would bring it up all kind of like in a Drive esque format and like help you click through those moments. Does that make sense?
2: I mean, it does. But something that just occurred to me as we've been talking about this here, um, what about like privacy? Issues because inevitably during the workday, we're going to have to tend to some personal matters, right? On our computers. So does that mean that someone has access to like everything we're doing online? Because if so, that is a little like big brother-ish.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, privacy was the reason I wrote about this company because we all know Zach Whittaker, our security editor, he has a really sharp take and ability to understand if a company's security jargon is legitimate. And he said that they had a pretty savvy approach. So they only record locally on someone's computer, Mm. and they say that it's only available to the user, not all the person. I will say, Marianne, like, if I was to use this, I would probably pause it on Slack. I would pause it on Twitter DMs, Mm -hmm, but but then mm -hmm. you start pausing. And so I, I do think it's a little bit of, like, a customer or a user hump to get over, which is, like, the vulnerability it takes to have your day completely recorded.
0: Yeah, but I think we have a uniquely strange, you know, job. Yeah. Like we often have to talk to people in like off the record, on background, deep background, blah, blah. And there's a lot of like privacy nuance that goes into that. And frankly, it's why I presume our corporate overlords don't spend a lot of time, you know, spelunking in our machines because, you know, we can't really protect people and so forth if they are. That said. People do tend to be a little bit less privacy conscious than I expect. So if the service works as well as Natasha seems to think that it might be able to, then maybe the privacy thing is more of us worrying about our own more unique work conditions than what a a salesperson at the gong might want, for example.
1: Sure, I agree. I think like their onboarding is going to be really important as it is with every company, but especially now because, you know, they automatically don't record incognito or private browsing videos, but you have to kind of choose for them not to record your signal and stuff like that. So I feel like it's important to have users really understand the product before they download it.
0: Yeah, I think if you're going to use this Use your own account. Don't use a corporate card. Don't use a corporate email address. Like use this for yourself if you'd like to have it. But maybe don't let your boss own it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, Andreessen is all over it. They invested, and that's kind of the recent news as well.
0: Uh, how much did they raise, and uh, what was the valuation?
1: Ten million at a seventy-five million dollar valuation, which I feel like is somewhat of like a a popular number round and valuation for Andreessen backing companies pre-launch. We've seen it with a few others. I can't remember their exact names right now.
0: Marianne, sticking to roughly $10 million rounds, you have a, not an Optimizely alum here, but an Uber alum to talk about.
1: Yeah.
2: So I've I've written about this company twice now. It's called Onward, formerly called Ensemble, founded by uh, Jacqueline Rome. She led new product launches at Uber Blue Apron. And it was a personal thing for her. She was the daughter of divorced parents and she could see like all the bickering and the back and forth that that her estranged parents um, went through over money. So she came up with this idea, and and it's not a new one, we have to like clarify. A lot of other startups, I think, have tried to tackle this, of just making it easier for divorced or separated parents, co-parents in general, to deal with financial matters now, if you know anyone who's been divorced, there are some amicable, you know, separations out there, but many of them are not. So it can be very contentious dealing with your ex about money, and so that's what they're trying to solve for.
0: And the idea here is to split child expenses. So this is this is not like like doing your divorce. This is about divvying up who pays for hockey lessons.
2: Exactly. So for one thing, I didn't know this, but apparently in the U.S., um, I think it's only. Only like 30% of all divorces have like child support plans in place. And they only include like really, really major stuff, you know. And so all the other expenses that come up all the time, like dentist appointments, music lessons, things like that, it's just not included. And you kind of have to deal with it ad hoc. So so what, th- what she's trying to do is give these co-parents a way to like, say, upload a receipt. Like, okay, I took my kid to the dentist. It cost $120. Here's a photo of the receipt let's talk about, yeah. let's negotiate who pays how much for this. And um, and then they can settle that expense through connection to payment providers like Venmo or Zelle through the Onward platform.
1: I randomly really like that they don't just have child-focused expenses on here. I saw in the story that it's for like just general expenses too that happens when you have an ex that you may have divorced. Because to me, that means that this company doesn't only have the ambition to be used during this very certain time in someone's life, but they kind of hope to have a broader expanse. And I think that'll save it from, from, from my view, it seems like their differentiation as a startup is not this technology so much as their thought and nuance that they're building a like, kind of a platform on top of existing technology. So I'm like, all right, you kind of have to be really savvy. If if you're not going to disrupt the way payments are flowing,
2: yeah, I mean it's a good point. Yeah, they're they're saying they're giving them the ability to track expenses to like things like shared mortgages or telephone bills that maybe they're still both paying on. Uh, eventually, they want to have connected cards where I think the co parents will use cards with the same account so that there's no. There's no question about charges, you know, lots of transparency there. So one parent doesn't say, oh, did you really pay that much for this when they can see it clearly on the statement? I have to say the company is pre-revenue. They have not yet to monetize. So I found that interesting considering they've raised two rounds. This latest one was $9.7 million, uh, Series A led by TTV Capital.
0: Well, a couple of things I also really like about this one. One is uh, it got me introduced to Gingerbread Capital. So this was a new firm to me, and I had pulled them up beforehand. And what they do is they invest essentially in uh, in women founders, which I thought was pretty cool. I didn't know of that many uh, venture firms that had that as their core thesis, and so always good to add to that particular list. Uh, the monetization point, though, Marianne threw me for a loop because yeah. thirteen million dollars of venture capital deep. Yeah, I mean, you know. There's a lot of value to build into there.
1: Especially in like an environment where I I know I said that this is okay, but like there's a very general like fintech convention, which is like, you know, people are just building fancy UX on top of technology. Like, how do we know when it's really differentiated or a venture backable opportunity? So I feel like they should start proving that they're not just that very soon. Yeah, I was taken aback, I have
2: to admit. And so I asked Jacqueline, she said they plan to begin monetizing early next year. With a suite of new products, including the connected credit card that I mentioned. And they also plan to build out a paid subscription model. I'm not sure yeah. when because I feel like they should have maybe already done that. But anyway, they said that's in the, in the
0: future.
1: Early next year is soon.
0: <laughs> Early next year is soon. And also paid subscriptions is a good model. Uh, getting interchange incomes off of cards is a workable model. That's two. Mm -hmm. If you can mix in even one other element of monetization, this looks pretty sturdy.
1: They should monetize via blue check marks. I'm sure that will not at all be controversial. (laughs) 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 Speaking of controversy, let's talk about EdTech in India. I feel like that is one duo that has gone through so much turbulence in the past year. Which is why I was very surprised, Alex, that your deal of the week was something that has to do with an IPO.
0: Yeah, not only an IPO, but it has to do with Baiju's. But it's not Baiju's. That's going public. Instead, they bought a company called Akash. And apparently, this is a a network of in-person tutoring centers in the Indian uh, education market. I'm not even going to say ed tech because this just feels like education services, if you will. (laughs) Bought it for around a billion. Um, It's going to do revenue of about $500 I think, by the end of either this year or the next. So it's reached scale. And uh, the company, this subsidiary of Baiju's, could go public as early as February. And critically, if it does, it could raise a bunch of money. And I presume that. If uh, Baiju's retains parent company status, there's going to be some sort of arrangement there. The the point is, it could be a fundraising moment for Baiju's. It's an indication that IPOs are not dead, Natasha, to our surprise. And also that EdTech in India, also not dead. And given that Baiju's had layoffs recently, I'm almost perplexed by this package of stories.
1: Yeah, I just, I don't get it. And I know Mary and me and you kind of shared that confusion on... Take all these factors aside. How is Baiju's trying to make an IPO happen for a company it required? I might be showing my lack of business fundamentals, but...
2: I don't understand how that, that works Like structure-wise. I mean, is it a subsidiary? And I didn't know that you could like have a subsidiary go public. I mean, how does that even work?
0: Well, we, we've seen this a little bit because uh, VMware was publicly traded, but Dell owned most of the stock for a while. So you can own most of a company and, and have some of it trade because the float of a, of a stock, the shares that are out there, Is is not always entirely free floating, right? You know, the founder might own a chunk of it, prior investors, etc. So maybe that's the way it works out. I'm just I'm just shocked that there's this is the moment for it. Forget the mechanics of it. (laughs) The fact that they want to take a tutoring business public for three and a half billion dollars. It's
2: profitable though. Lots of revenue.
0: Cool.
1: Wait, but but so actually, yeah. Like, can we talk about that for a second? Because when I was prepping, I saw Akash has been profitable for years. Is on track to clock a revenue of over five hundred million. By the end of 2024, at a margin of 25%. Does that mean that the fact that Batches is only looking to raise $800 million to $1 billion in the IPO like, is not super ambitious? Or am I getting confused on the math? Because, I, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a huge bump. They paid a billion,
0: right? So They, they paid a billion, and they're going to raise a billion. But the value of the company, b- by the reporting that we've seen, is three and a half. So they're not going to sell mm-hmm. the whole company in the IPO. When a company goes public, you only sell a chunk of shares. And so often you'll see a business say, hey, you know, we're going public at $15 a share and we're going to sell 10 million shares. Yeah. And, uh, and then they'll sell that and that'll become the initial float of stock. Okay. And mm-hmm. that's not the same thing as selling the whole business, but it will revalue it and will give Jews theoretically a lot of positive balance sheet stuff to play with. Because the rest of that stake will be liquid.
2: I guess they have a lot of confidence in this business, clearly, and especially in this environment.
1: And I think, kind of the way you introduced it, Alex, like the, the fact that they're not betting on the technology part, but like the physical in person tutoring part of their business, I think says something. So, I mean, we'll see mm-hmm. what's happening. I have no idea. Super interesting.
0: Yeah. We'll go back to the layoffs point later on in the show. But, you know, just hold on to the fact that even the most best valued companies out there that have raised the most money are thinking about their cost structure and raising more capital and trying to avoid dilution. So I would slot the Baiju story into that, Natasha. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it'll be the last time we see a uh, a previously acquisitive ed tech uh, end up shedding some assets that might be a little bit non-core.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think it's a good way to look around it. And I actually, my husband been coming up on that front next week.
0: Ooh, I don't actually know what that is.
1: Yeah, I haven't mentioned it yet, but... We'll talk about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, feel free to Slack DM me after the show so I know I know what you're working on. Uh, I'm curious about that. Speaking of uh, unicorns going public, I, I did some work this week on a bit of data from Battery Ventures. And I, I, you know me, I love a, a 50-page report full of charts because there's so much stuff to pull out of this. <laughs> One thing that kind of blew my mind, though, was the, some data points that Battery had in there, which is that there's been more than 1,000 unicorns minted or kind of born, if you will, in the last uh, 10 years. And there have been 200. Technology IPOs essentially creating this uh, this amazing kind of five to one ratio of of unicorns created to tech IPOs. And currently, as Marianne can tell you, the pace at which unicorns are being created is slowed down, especially in the fintech world this year, but it's not gone to zero. But IPOs have. So we're extending the ratio of of unexited companies to two IPOs. And I'm just kind of in awe of how imbalanced this is and how we're still seeing dozens of billions of dollars invested every quarter into these companies and but no one seems to know when they're going to be liquid. I mean, my God, Baiju's not going public is is indicative of this, Mary. And I I, 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 mm-hmm. I struggle to figure out what's going to happen to these companies.
2: Yeah, I mean, agreed. Like last year, as we keep talking about, it was crazy. Like we were seeing new unicorns at least almost daily. It felt like. I mean, maybe it wasn't daily, but it felt like daily. And it's just it's just nuts. And so, as you point out in your article, I mean, there's only so many of these companies that are going to be able to go public. We don't even know when that's going to happen. So. How are investors going to, you know, when and how are they going to get their returns? And in the meantime, are they just going to keep backing other companies? Like it just, I don't know. It just seems all very, very cloudy and up in the air.
1: I think the the framework and the piece was like especially helpful for me to realize how hard it was even before the downturn to become a unicorn who goes public. The fact that you have to beat this five to one odds. And so, Alex, one paragraph specifically, I think, like helps click it in for me, which is quote, naturally, both of these figures of both the IPOs and the new billion dollar companies were greatly expanded by the 2020-2021 venture boom. Venture money flowed freely, creating more unicorns, and that same period created more IPOs. So wouldn't the two balance out? And so when you said that they didn't, I was kind of like, yeah, damn, you're right. Like The numbers aren't getting better, even though it really felt like they were, even tech news wise and headlines wise.
2: But this is indicative of what we've been saying I think all along that I mean it was all too much people went crazy they overvalued companies and this is this is the consequence of it I mean you know it's hopefully people will learn their lesson from this like slow it down jeez
0: yeah and you know one thing that Jason Lemkin pointed out was that we've seen SaaS valuations or SaaS revenue multiples come down by as much as 75% and so that means that you now get kind of a quarter of the value that you used to, which means that if a unicorn doubled since last year at this time, it would be worth half as much. Wow. The revenue scale required to go public at a unicorn price is now much more than you'd think. Because in, in the old days, the riff was you wanted to have a million dollars in in trailing revenue. You wanted to have, you know, successive quarters of expanding profitability. Naturally, we've now traded a faster growth for less profits. But at $100 million in revenue, at a six X multiple, you're not a unicorn. Yeah. And so, you know, how fast do you have to grow to actually get a higher revenue multiple to the point in which you can become a unicorn on 100 million in revenue? It's actually much harder than you think. And so I would be uh, very hesitant to say that most unicorns still are. I would say most of them aren't, if that makes sense. And I think that many of them are going to be not companies at all by this time next year, if if things don't change, because I just don't see how you put more capital into a business that's this upside down when it comes to valuations. Right. And maybe that's mean. Maybe this is a bit of a bummer moment, but like, my gosh. I mean,
2: it's reality. It's reality.
0: Uh, this week, Amplitude, a company that went public late last year, I think somewhere in there, reported earnings and they had a great set of numbers. Like, sure, there was a couple of things around the edges you might want to change, but there's some macro conditions going on. And their stock w- uh, went up a little bit after yesterday's, uh, sorry, Wednesday's sh- shellacking after the Federal Reserve. And after their good quarter, after good guidance, after a good earnings call, after solid results, they are now worth 6.8x their current run weight. And they grew like 35% year over year in the last quarter. I, I mean, like, that's a quick pace of growth for a public SaaS company. And they're worth 1.6 billion off of way north of 200 million wow. in, in annualized revenue. I mean, that's hard for these private companies. Yeah. They're not close to that. Yeah. I, I worry. No.
2: Not at all. I feel like founders, you know, (laughs) in a way, they, you know, they were told all these things last year about oh, growth, growth at all costs, growth at all costs, and now all of a sudden everything's like three hundred and sixty, and they're they're having to shift. I mean, I kind of feel for them in this situation, but at the same time, like we've said this time and time and again, and we said it disrupt, you know, a few weeks ago. I mean, you got to just use your common sense too. Like no matter. No matter what you're trying to do to grow, be responsible about it. Don't go crazy, you know, because this is what happens when you do. And if you're not responsible with your growth and your spend, <laughs> you can get really screwed later.
1: It's probably a good time to bring up Brex because both of us wrote about the company this week. And I actually really liked one of their new growth ideas that they're going to be doing, which is building partnerships with accelerators early on to get those, you know, pre-seed, pre-anything companies onto Brex for free. And then hopefully stay with them over time. And then at, at a Series B stage will be when Brex starts to make money on them. And so I talked to Henrique, their co-founder and CEO this week about their latest partnership with Techstars. And I kind of just appreciated the candor of like, hey, we're making an upfront investment in a customer acquisition cost of acquiring a ton of small startups as customers and giving them free access to some of our services for the duration of their accelerator. And here's how and why. Kind of like a more fine point on why that makes sense for them as a business strategy. Usually when you hear partnerships, it's not that exciting to cover because companies are just like, the synergies are so great. I like that Henrique was like, oh, I mean, yeah, we're, we would only work with accelerators that have moonshots that have worked in the past, like YC and Techstars. And we're hoping that they t- make it to Series B. Otherwise, you know, we're going to lose money. I, w- I just appreciated the transparency there.
0: A small point though, Natasha. The the investment that Brex is making is essentially they are spending more to acquire and service these customers than they expect to generate in revenue in the near term in hopes that a handful of them end up becoming big and therefore Brex does well. But they're not like actually investing capital per se. They're essentially giving uh, product discounts to a degree.
1: Yeah, yeah. M- my headline was, was kind of like Brex is looking more and more like a venture capitalist over time. And I meant that more in like a theoretical way than a legitimate, like he actually said that they are not going to be taking the venture capital route um, in terms of investing in other companies because he thinks that investor money that they get should not be used to reinvest, um, which I was kind of very much agree with. But anyway, separately, <laughs> it, it's more the idea that like Brex needs to be as early as possible because they have so many competitors. Marianne, which you've covered extensively, they need to find savvier ways to get their foot in the door before any of their competitors do
2: yeah I mean, but and I agree with you, Henrique was actually extremely um candid during our interview at on the t c plus stage at disrupt and and spoke right quite freely about uh, all the goings on at the company this summer, including the controversy around this is a part where I'm a little bit confused their decision to stop serving SMBs and startups that were not quote unquote uh, professionally funded. you know also earlier this year they announced a push into the enterprise so I don't know. I mean, Henrique had said, you know, that he felt like they had tried to do too much at once, so they're trying to scale back. But this almost feels a little bit contradictory to that because like are you focusing on the enterprise but you're still focusing on the earlier stage, you know
1: what I mean? For me it felt more like they were reiterating that they're only focusing on the enterprise because tech stars and Y Combinator companies are pretty like their whole goal and the reason they're there is because they want venture backing, not just kind of bootstrapped. So that's kind of how I viewed professionally funded. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. But Alex, I'm curious if you agree.
0: Yeah, kind of connecting those two dots, like if you do raise venture capital, the chance that your business grows quickly and becomes enterprise scale is is moderate. If you are not venture backed and you're just building a business, the chance that it reaches enterprise scale quickly is, is smaller. That's the point of venture capital. It's an accelerant. So if you're only going to be putting money into enterprise companies and or, or only professionally backed ones, well, you, then you hope the professionally backed ones become enterprise scale companies. Hence why they're working with a couple of accelerators that, to not just point, have generated moonshots in the past. So that, that's my read. Yeah. But Marianne, do you have a reasonable point? Absolutely. Could we kind of explain to make it work? Sure. But I mean, yeah, they, they are currently teaming up with smaller companies after saying they were not going to do that. So I, I feel the tension. But also, there's probably not one single sentence that will ever describe a company of Brex's scale, like their entire vision yeah. in one sentence, just because once you get to be that big, you're, you're, you're complex.
2: Yeah, I mean, and they've had a lot of news just last month they laid off 11% of their staff. They but at the same time they've also landed new customers like Coinbase and SeatGeek.
1: It's difficult to like understand and I actually like had this idea of like I wish we could create timelines of like 10 unicorns of their 2022s just to like put all that news in one damn place because it's so difficult other than looking at like our posts because it's so hard to connect the dots, but you know
0: Oh, that, that would be amazing. Imagine, imagine like a timeline, right? Uh, and like, um, and you could like click on individual dots in the timeline and bring up like TechCrunch stories that we wrote at different times. Yeah. So you could see like when we covered a company more, when it raised money, when it went public, when it bought or something or got acquired, launched something. That would be really cool. We can't build that because we don't have the, the team to do it. But like, that would be cool. <laughs> Very cool.
1: Wouldn't it? So yeah, I don't know. Someone steal the idea, feel free. We can't do it yeah. right now. So it's fine. Um, I want to take this idea of like companies who have done a lot and startups serving startups and talk about Stripe because they also had layoffs, uh, this week, the week of fintech layoffs, Marianne, that you coined already.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, this kind of came as a shock and we're recording this on Thursday and we just got the news this morning. Paul, uh, in the UK covered Stripe cutting 14% of its workforce that amounted to over 1100 people. Okay. It's not a shock. I mean, I think we've heard rumors about Stripe conducting layoffs pretty much for the past six months or so. Yes. But, um, still quite a lot of people. Once again, we have a CEO admitting that they've overhired, that they did overhire. And uh, one of the the quotes they overhired for the world we're in. Um, Yeah. So super interesting when he addressed that. Is it Patrick Collison?
0: Collison, I believe.
2: Collison. I butchered that. Nice. Okay. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Anyway, so point is uh, laying off a lot of people. They're not the only ones. We had Chime. We had Chargebee, Open Door.
1: There's rumors about Lyft. There's obviously the Twitter layoffs that are reportedly impending. I feel like I have completely jinxed the layoff trend because just last week I wrote about how the trend is kind of reversing.
0: That's true. Oh my god! I wasn't gonna bring that up because you had a reasonable (laughs) point. The data did show that layoffs were slowing, and then they stopped slowing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And honestly, like kudos to Forbes because they wrote a story a few weeks ago about Stripe conducting kind of. A version of layoffs with trying to get people out. And I mean, it's just like all the different ways we see people, uh, companies try and create uh, departures. Natural
2: attrition. Natural attrition.
1: Yeah. And so I actually feel like that story is like a good reason why even if the data shows that layoff events might be slowing down, there's more subtle ways. And there always have been, but there might be more subtle ways. I'm curious if you guys think that we're going to see more layoff events before like Thanksgiving. Not to jinx again, but... It's just kind of like I'm wondering if the holidays at all are going to be playing a role into it. We're going to talk about it next week on Equity Wednesday too, but let's let's tease it out right now.
0: I mean the answer is yes, right? We're going to see more layoffs before Thanksgiving. I I, I don't see a way around it. We've actually seen companies and not just better.com go through successive like rounds of layoffs. And I think that that fact indicates that, you know, even in the case of a Stripe, you know, a company that is big and has done well and has a lot going for it, uh, and Chime, which was not profitable back in like 2020. I mean, these are not companies that are, that are sick. Right. These are not companies that were supposed to be the, the laggards. You know, These are not the wounded gazelles of the herd. <laughs> yeah. These are supposed to be the strong players. So the fact that they overhired and, and so forth, I think goes to show that down the quality stack, there's going to be even more issues.
2: For sure. I mean, I think it's sobering, quite frankly. I mean, Stripe was valued at $95 billion. Its internal valuation did drop, of course, but still worth a hell of a lot of money. Uh, Chime too was was valued quite high. What was the twenty five billion? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that's a lot of money. I mean you know so it's sobering to me. And like if you're a startup and you're you're not valued in the tens of billions and you're seeing these companies that are and they're struggling and having to to lay off. I mean yeah, I, I really think this is kind of just the beginning of probably a large number of fintech layoffs we're going to be seeing in the coming months.
0: Marianne, a question about this. I put. The whole Web3 crypto world inside of fintech, because mm-hmm. it's financial technology, right? Now, I understand why people like to have it in its own niche, and that's fine. But like fundamentally, it's about money and shares, essentially. Yeah. So are we seeing any indication that there is a similar spate of layoffs in the Web3 world? Because I feel like we hear less about staff reductions from that side of fintech.
2: Yeah, I mean honestly, <laughs> sounds bad, but I mean ever since we had like a crypto team built out here at TechCrunch, I don't pay as much attention to the web3 space as I probably should because I in my mind I've I've kind of really made it very distinct from just general fintech, but I mean Coinbase had a bunch of layoffs, right? And rescinded offers. So, yeah, there's there's been a, there have been layoffs
0: in the the web3 world if I recall correctly. In the marketplace side of things, right? Like in the in the trading world and so I almost put those in the same bucket as like Robinhood more than mm-hmm. I made a DAO for my bridge protocols. So that way you can move your L2 NFTs <laughs> off chain to your cold storage, like whatever True. that is. I'm curious about that company.
1: <laughs> I think those companies are going to die quieter deaths because maybe they don't have as many people. One. And then two, like I feel like there are so many of them that it's probably hard to track. Like I feel like the trading platforms just by nature of what they did became these household names in crypto. But those smaller projects, yeah. I feel like are, you know, they can probably exist on pretty little. And so maybe they'll lose people, but they won't lose like the appearance, which actually is very similar to venture firms. Am I right?
0: Ooh, Interesting. <laughs> if, a, if a decentralized <laughs> application falls in the forest and it only has five users, does it make a sound?
1: <laughs> exactly. The answer is no, That's a apparently. Good one.
2: Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes for all. I mean, fintechs in general, really. I mean, there were so many of them built over the past couple of years. I mean, obviously, we're paying... More attention at this time to these giants, right? These these exactly. tens of billions of dollars valued ones, but to Natasha's point, I mean, there's so many smaller fintechs as well that are probably also going to to die more quietly, as she put it. Yeah, so, sorry, um, There's There's probably parallels, but I mean, I think because crypto is still feels so new and emerging, it's just not quite the same level because of the the difference in maturity.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I guess I'm curious, kind of tying this back to our discussion about unicorns and their health, I, I'm curious if the rumored unicorn death wave that we're supposed to be seeing at some point in time will line up with the point in which other startups also run out of cash and can't raise at, at at all. Because I keep hearing from folks that there's a lot of dead companies walking. I think, Natasha, did you call these zombies or something? In a, in a- yeah,
1: a VC described them as like startup zombies. And I was like, yep, that sounds about right. And then ghosts, I mean... A lot of spooky
0: a lot of spooky things well it was just Halloween, so it's, it's very purple I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm trying to figure out when this all shakes out when does when do we see for example, neobank consolidation to the like uh, at 10x the pace we're currently seeing it I, I don't know yeah but uh I, I do know that by the time this podcast is out, we will have had coinbase earnings because they're dropping uh, Thursday afternoon after we record this uh, and so we'll have more indication about what's going on there but uh, today we don't
1: well I know we only have like a second left, so I'll just end with kind of this idea of, it's actually perfect. It's about quality assurance. I wrote about a new company. It's called Revere. It's trying to do a thing that a lot of VCs have an allergy to. It's trying to create a rating system for the venture capital industry. But unlike previous attempts, because I know you guys are thinking of like, the funded and just like VC ratings. It's basically like a Cambridge type report on emerging fund managers meant to help give LPs a better way to understand how strong a lot of these new bets are. And so it's not really for like founder value add or malpractice in that way. It's more like, can we give LPs reports that look the same and then help people sift through them? So it hasn't Ruffled feathers as I thought I would have since I published the piece. But in my DMs, when I was searching, um, VC's were definitely like, "We don't need another unfiltered readings site."
2: But isn't you said it's focused on emerging funds, right? Yeah. It's not like the more established ones. It's not
1: going to tell us like entries and strengths and weaknesses. It's going to tell us why this new fund splashing onto the scene has, you know, where its strengths are, where its weaknesses are. It's really cool. If you look through like the PDF, it's pretty in depth. They don't rate like you should invest or you shouldn't. It's more like, here's a heat map of what they're strong at, what they're weak at and what they, what their differentiators are. You invest if you want. Here's just kind of our take.
0: I mean, Glassdoor was venture backed, right? I'm sure. I have no clue. Why? I don't know. Seems kind of like fair play to me.
1: Yeah. It's, it's very much one of those things where it's like, I, I think it's important. I think emerging fund managers would do it, but there are so many challenges ahead. So just for the sheer reality of the challenges ahead for a company like Revere, I'm impressed by their launch. And it's built by a former angelist lead and a uh, family office operator. So real people with real
0: experience. Yeah. And we'll keep an eye on it because we're going to be curious to see what the data tells us about investors out there and what they tell us about themselves versus what the market thinks. But we are out of time. So we're going to shut up and uh, let this pod get edited and shipped out. And that way, news can immediately begin to drop the moment we finish. <laughs> and it'll drop all weekend long. And it will be back Monday morning. Natasha, are you or I doing the Monday show on Monday?
1: You know what? Let's People have to stay tuned to find out.
0: Stay tuned and find <laughs> out. It's going to be either me or Natasha. All right. That's all the time we got. Uh, a big thanks to the TechCrunch team for their impossibly hard work this week. And a thank you, as always, to Teresa for making this episode come out on time. And uh, Natasha and Marianne, I adore you both. And I will talk to everyone on Monday.
1: Perfect. Bye. Bye.
0: Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporters, Natasha Moscarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconzolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Picabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.